Hi, I'm Kieran. And I'm Riku. Welcome back to Artificially Ever After, where today we're going to be discussing Can AI read your mind? Hello, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Today we're going to talk about a really interesting topic that I think we didn't we underestimated just how important this would be. Yeah, uh, I'd come I'd come across this paper a while ago now actually that kind of uh, inspired this episode and uh, it's opened a bit of a Pandora's box, hasn't it, Ricky? Yeah, I think we both uh, started listening to an audio book. Yeah, that partly inspired this episode actually, which we'll we'll come back and mention this at the end. But um, yeah, a really great book which um, inspired a lot of these topics that we're going to be discussing today, and, and I think has set the picture and the tone for the scale and magnitude of this topic that we're going to talk about today which is can ai read your mind yeah so we're going to be answering and and demystifying that big question uh which i think people i've mentioned this to already i think their assumption is obviously not you know that's such a crazy Mm. thing but we're going to kind of clarify what exactly that means um and add a spoiler ai can read your mind (laughs) yeah i think that there's definitely some truth to that um and i think a really big uh, motivation for this episode is also just we want to clarify the difference between how the media portrays the degree to which AI can read your mind and kind of the current research and what it's actually capable of. Mm. And I've got to say, like, I learned a lot preparing for this episode. because Yeah, me too. Um, I'm also quite scared. <laughs> even from the research papers that these, media, uh, that these media articles are making their bold claims on, even the research papers are actually kind of misleading sometimes. Yeah. So should we give a quick overview of this episode and, and the kind of topics we're going to cover? Yeah, so we'll start with the basics and explain exactly what does it mean to read minds, because I think that we may all have different interpretations of that, and then go into what a BCI is, which stands for brain-computer interface, and what hardwares and which, which types of technology would you actually see if you were going to use a BCI. After this, we'll talk about current technologies and what's capable now. And this is where we'll talk about some research papers. And there's a little fun clip of some Pink Floyd songs coming up. Mm. After the fun fact, we'll talk about the future and where things are going. And very importantly, how this is going to impact society. Yeah, that's when it's going to start getting a bit sci-fi, isn't it? And uh, a bit closer to the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then we'll finish off with the really important ethics of this and why Kieran and I actually feel like we underestimate just how important this topic is. Yeah, and hopefully as well instill some confidence. You know, it, it will get a bit spooky this episode, but I think there are some clear kind of checkpoints and, and balances that we can put in place uh, if we understand this technology. So should we get into it? Let's do it. So Kieran, start us off. Yeah, so what does it actually mean for AI to read minds? Um, so... So just to sort of set the scene, um, you know, it, within a, within a, the course of a day, we, both you and I, and the, you know, who's listening to this, we have thousands of thoughts that kind of pop into our mind, impact the decisions that we make, um, you know, whether that's thinking of a person or a certain number, you know, whether that's your credit card number, uh, a place, or, you know, what you might want to say next. So all these kind of different thoughts. And each of these thoughts is associated with a firing pattern of neurons in your brain. Each of those firing patterns is unique and associated with the thought that you're thinking. And it creates this kind of minuscule electrical discharge that can be measured. And we've been measuring and and kind of scanning brains for these electrical signals for decades. Um, 
and in very dominant mental states, so like feeling relaxed or stressed, we've been able to measure and understand these for quite some time now. So you, in those instances, you have very kind of dominant, powerful mental states that you can see on these electrical uh, scans. So historically, we've had uh, what's known as EEG, which you may have heard of. That stands for electroencephalography. And if you've seen in movies uh, when you've got kind of people wearing these caps with like hundreds of wires coming out, connecting into a computer or something, that is your kind of textbook EEG. Um, but these devices now are actually getting smaller and a lot kind of more refined. And there are lots of consumer-based products, which we'll come on to discussing, which have simpler EEGs. Um, and historically, EEGs have been used to understand kind of different um, mental disorders. So there's things like epilepsy, I think was one of the first instances. So being able to detect the patterns in your brain when someone's having a seizure, um, also understanding the location of tumours. So there's all these different medical diagnoses which were made possible from the invention of the EEG. Uh, but since then, we've seen much more advanced types of brain scans. So you've got like CT scans, MRI scans, which those are the ones that you see in hospitals when people lie on their back and go into those kind of big tubes, um, which are not getting into kind of consumer devices yet. But all of these are basically different ways for measuring and, and understanding your, your kind of brain activity. And what we're starting to see now, um, as the kind of granularity of these scans is getting better, we're starting to see AI and machine learning being used to understand this brain scan data. Um, so the conclusions that we could historically draw from this data were quite primitive. So it would be, you know, is someone in a state of uh, seizure or are they not? What's the kind of general region of a tumour, for example? Now we're getting into these much more advanced understandings um, by training machine learning on this data and it can give us these predictions of different mental states which is what we're going to kind of talk about now so the idea really of of ai reading your mind is taking this brain scan data and you know just looking at that data on a computer is not going to mean anything really but what ai is kind of facilitating an understanding of what these different mental states mean yeah, and one way to separate what things that the AI is reading are kind of things like the conscious experience, which may be those thoughts like when you're thinking of a person, but there's also the unconscious things that the AI can understand, such mm. as you might be looking at a photo of an apple but not realise it's an apple, and the AI might still be able to understand what you're looking at, and that's different to seeing an apple and actually thinking, oh, that's an apple. Yeah, I think that's a shift we're starting to see as well as historically with all of these types of uh, EEG devices, um, you would have to very consciously try and think something or, or induce a mental state for it to be able to pick up. So I think another thing which we'll come on to as well is, is using these devices and, and your kind of brain state can be to control kind of prosthetics or, or robotic devices, but you'd have to very kind of consciously think about doing that. Whereas now we're starting to see a shift in be able to kind of passively read your mental state to understand what you're thinking unconsciously, like you said. Yeah. And the methods that Kieran just mentioned, such as the EEG and the MRI, these brain scans, they're specifically called non-invasive methods to measure your brain state, so the, the way your neurons are firing in your brain at a certain time. But on the other hand, there, there are other methods called invasive methods. And you can think of the non-invasive ones as where the scanner is outside of the brain. So you can just kind of, you can easily just grab someone and whack on either a hat with loads of little bumps on it or put them in this um i don't know if anyone's seen avatar but this kind of tube that yeah. makes a loud noise and reads your brain 
Non-invasive methods are very quick and easy to read someone's brain state, whereas these invasive methods are, require surgical implants, and this is where you actually put the scanner inside the brain. And you might ask, why would anyone do that? And as you can imagine, the, the invasive methods have much more accurate and cleaner recordings of the brain state. Yeah, your skull's not in the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... And there's a common saying of AI, like garbage in, garbage out. So a big reason to have these invasive methods is because you're going to give the AI better, cleaner data that mm -hmm. will allow it to do more useful things. Straight from the source. Which leads us on to a company which a lot of people may have heard about that we're going to discuss now, which is... That is Neuralink, which uh, was founded in 2016 by a familiar face, Elon Musk. Since 2016 to 2022, they've got $363 million just in funding. Wow. And Neuralink are an example company that use invasive methods. And the cool thing about Neuralink is they actually have a surgical robot that implants these things called neural threads, which are these electrodes that are thinner than a human hair. So you can wow. imagine it's a super precise little robot that puts these things in your brain that um, that reads your brain activity to precision that's you know, smaller than a human hair, which is... Mm. And I think the, the, one of the big motivations for them wanting to do that is because I think their ultimate goal with this uh, robot is to have a procedure which doesn't require you to go under general anesthesia and you can walk into like a clinic and you kind of sit down and it can do that procedure and you kind of walk out within a, an hour or so or something oh wow that is crazy yeah and it replaces your skull right like a bit of your skull i i didn't know it did that yeah so i think that's another thing too is that the the actual kind of computer device sits in place of the section of skull that was removed so that's another really weird thing oh wow and it's really important to note the main motivation for uh, Neuralink was specifically to help people with medical conditions. And I might say it's wrong, but quadriplegia, paraplegia, vision loss, hearing loss, and the inability to speak. So these are all examples of uh, conditions where people's brains have been affected. And the motivation here with Neuralink is that with the insertion of this device, um, we can assist people with these conditions and hopefully make their quality of life better by alleviating their symptoms and, and stuff. Exactly, yeah. And whilst the, the main mission is to say, for instance, if someone has difficulty, has a condition where they're unable to hear or speak, um, the goal would be to recover those functionalities. Yeah. I believe they're starting out with people with quadriplegia to move the mouse on a computer. Mm. And of course, the overall goal of, of Neuralink is to recover these functionalities that people with quadriplegia may have, such as like moving their limbs. Neuralink's first product is called telepathy, which which allows these people to regain control of their phone or the computer, and ideally with any device, just through, just through thinking. Yeah, so it's kind of using their thoughts to control a cursor. I think is the initial. Is all of this is like quite unclear as well because annoyingly most of this stuff we have to infer through tweets from Elon Musk so we have to caveat everything here but from on you know the stuff on their website is this initial product where they're, they're moving a cursor and they just got their first human trial right yes so it was a while ago now I think Neuralink got FDA approval to start implanting these devices into humans because for the most part they've been doing it I think in pigs primarily um, and then uh, a few months ago there was the first human participant who had quadriplegia who was, um, put themselves forward to have uh, this first telepathy device implanted in their brain. Um, and we are yet to hear any information other than, again, a tweet from Elon Musk saying that they are recovering well. But I'm sure we'll find out more to come. But yes, human trials have begun. 
Wow. And just to give a bit more of a, a broader outline of what's out there, there's another company that are making what's supposed called Synchrom, who interestingly, um, someone who was part of the Neuralink project actually moved to Synchrom very early on, who have a completely different approach. So whilst Neuralink is very invasive, where it directly implants these neural threads into the brain, Synchron are trying to do something still invasive, but less so. And instead of directly implanting into the brain, they use keyhole surgery to implant the device in the blood vessel by uh, the motor cortex, which is a much simpler procedure, which doesn't need a neurosurgeon. Yeah, and it's a lot lower risk as well, I'd imagine. Yeah. And there's been some fairly well-known companies doing non-invasive technology, such as a company called Muse that use EEG, so a non-invasive method that's super portable, and, and their product's actually motivated to induce like med- meditative states, so try and relax some people. Yeah, so we're starting to see this area of consumer neurotechnology being developed, which is basically where people are using these, uh, what is now quite old technology with EEG devices, and putting them into kind of small consumer tech that you can wear in kind of like a headband, like Riku said, for health helping people with meditation, there's some with helping people helping people concentrate. And then also we're starting to see a lot of these companies now which are trying to assist people again with kind of neurological disorders. Um, so there are some which um, can help people with epilepsy and they can help and they can actually uh, like ping people's phones with notifications uh, before they're about to have an epileptic seizure, wow. which is really cool. Um, and then there's people working on ways to help with uh, people with depression, addiction, pain disorders schizophrenia so there are all these different medical conditions that people are now looking at and i think most of them have um and and most of them are using machine learning methods on top of these devices to do so but what we're now going to talk about is the kind of cool slightly dystopian uh, research studies which are being done which aren't quite in consumer technology yet but maybe in the foreseeable future but this is the kind of cutting edge of what can be done with these brain scan devices um, which are getting a bit closer to what we would call as reading your mind. Yeah, and Kieran's going to start off with something called the wave. Um, and I just wanted to say initially that this is a really good example of um, if you just read the media headline, it sounds way more dystopian scale than it is. So Kieran's going to demystify that. Yeah, so one of the things people have been trying to do for a while with EEG devices is actually help people uh, to type or write without the use of their kind of fingers uh, or without speaking. So whereby you just think the words and they start typing on your computer, which sounds very spooky, but people have been actually trying to do this with some success for a while. However, most of these existing methods use a combination of EEG devices strapped on your head and eye tracking to kind of look at which sort of words you're looking at. However, this new research study, which came out last year, just uses an EEG device that's kind of very non-invasive that's strapped to your head and is able to type out the words which you're thinking. Um, And it was trained basically by participants wearing one of these caps and it recorded their brain activity whilst they were reading passages of text. So people that were able to read and speak, this was how it was trained. So it was associating the brain state that was being recorded from the EEG device to the words and sentences that were being spoken. And the AI over time with enough data was able to kind of map between these brain states and the text that people were thinking. And one of the reasons why this technology has actually been getting better more recently, and this approach that this DeWave paper has tapped into, is using the power of large language models, which 
you know, as if you've listened to our ChatGPT episode, have been gaining traction in recent years and getting bigger and bigger. Um, but think of kind of ChatGPT here is the engine powering this approach. So what is done is basically instead of you going on to kind of chatgpt.com and typing in a prompt and it predicting that the next words, they have trained this uh, method using a, a different large language model whereby it is prompted instead by, instead of your typed words, it's prompted by your mental state that's recorded from these EEG devices. And again, over time, what happens is the machine learning algorithm learns to map from your mental state to the next word that you're likely to kind of think or say. Um, and then over time, uh, with currently 40% accuracy, which doesn't doesn't seem like a lot, but I guess for what it's doing, it's, it's still quite impressive. They're able to get participants to wear this cap and, and type text just by thinking it. Uh, and also just to note as well, that they've stated, the authors of this paper, that they're currently getting 60% accuracy, uh, but that is yet to be peer-reviewed. But they're saying that, you know, with these bigger models, that performance is, is increasing. Um, and obviously a big motivation for this is people with, with conditions that mean that they cannot type like uh, you, you or I could recoup but um, another thing as well is that speaking is around like three times faster than typing and, and also if you think about typing on a keyboard with all 10 digits compared to typing on your phone is just using your two thumbs speaking is even faster than that still so you know a big motivation for some of the products that we're going to be talking about is how much quicker it is to kind of get across what you're thinking to the kind of digital um, so this is a really cool study that is um getting slightly spooky but we're going to get even spookier aren't we yeah but on that my first impression from this was that the ai is can just essentially read out what you're thinking in your head um but a nuance of this study is that when evaluating how well the ai is performing the setup with the participant was that they still had a text in front of them that they're reading and the ai's output is compared to the text that they're reading in front of them so it's not like they have their eyes closed and they're reading out, I don't know, the story of their <laughs> their dreams in life. Like, they're very much reading something that's in front of their eyes. And the AI can't see the text that the human's reading. They, it can only see the human's brain state. And then it's achieving these, like, 46% mm. accuracies. Yeah, exactly. Um, and But, you know, the techniques are developing so quickly and, and people come out with new ways to do this stuff. And, and like we said before large language models like ChatGBT have massively increased the kind of performance of these models. So big breakthroughs can can drastically change how we do this and, and how good they are. Um, which, speaking of which, and, and a technology which has just got much better is a different paper that Riku's going to talk about now, which is getting even spookier. <laughs> yeah, so maybe with uh, the wave that Kieran was just talking about may sound scary because if you just think of some story in your head, maybe uh, the AI can can generate that with or without you knowing. But now there's a paper called Cinematic Mindscapes, which is a uh, very po poetically named, where they now have AI that reads your brain data and produces the image that you're seeing. Mm. And one difference between these two papers, where the wave uses EEG, which is a super simple, almost hat that you can just strap on, so on, and quickly train a model. With Cinematic Mindscapes, they use fMRI machines, which require these patients to sit down this big tube that makes a big whirly noise around them for a while. So it's nowhere near as easy to plug someone into. But you can imagine that the brain scans are much more accurate, and that's why they're able to do this much more impressive task of generating what people are seeing 
Yeah, they're much higher resolution, aren't they? Which I think is, uh, you know, going back to what you're saying about these invasive versus non-invasive, you can imagine the kind of fidelity and quality of the brain scans when it's actually in your brain. Yeah, and another parallel with uh, DeWave that Kieran was mentioning was that DeWave leveraged this big boom in large language models to make it, make this BCI technology better. And cinematic mindscapes used this big boom in something called diffusion models, which is how a lot of AIs generate images, use this new big breakthrough in technology, applied it to this BCI technology, and now we're getting really impressive reconstructions of what people are just seeing just from their brain scan. But again, just like with the wave, cinematic mindscape still is reconstructing images that people are looking at. It's not as if um, you are picturing yourself at a beach and then the AI can predict that exactly. But that isn't to say that that, that technology isn't just around the corner. Yeah, and what was also spooky about this paper was that there have been previous works that have tried to do a similar thing, they weren't very good at all. So there was a big leap in how much better cinematic mindscapes was at reconstructing the images people were looking at. However, this was the first instance as well, wasn't it, Riku, of where they were actually able to generate videos of what people were looking at as well. So... So already that's like two examples of sort of different mediums by which we think, right? So, you know, we've got an AI which is able to understand the kind of written text that we're thinking. We've now got cinematic mindscapes, which is tapping into like visual cortex firing behavior. And there's another one, isn't there? So it's kind of third medium, which is uh, auditory, right? Yeah, and any Pink Floyd fans out there listening right now are going to be very happy (laughs) because this other research team decided to do the same thing with music. So hook people up. They used EEG, so same as the Wave. Um, so it's a really easy plug-in and portable uh, brain scanner. They would scan people's brains while they listen to different music. And the AI would be able to map from the brain state to the, the sounds that the human is listening to. Yeah, it's very crazy that they were able to do that from just EEG data as well, because I'm now going to quickly play the, the two instances. So the, the song that the person was listening to and then the reconstruction of that song from just the EEG data is scarily similar considering it was not with a kind of big fMRI scanner. So here are the two side by side. So the first thing I'm going to play you is the audio that the participant was listening to in the headphones, which is the Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall. So this is the song that was playing in their headphones. I think it was slowed down slightly so that, you know, it was easier for the algorithm. So that's a 15 second clip and then the reconstructed version of that so this was what was generated just from reading their brain data here is the ai's version I think it was that little bit that sounded like the, yeah. the lyrics a bit. It was like the end. Yeah, little... very crazy. So yeah, that is this version where they're using um, kind of auditory data input as well. So all these different approaches that are getting closer to just understanding, you know, what it is you're sensing or perceiving or, or thinking. Yeah, if you think about the big picture, if you put all this together and you just, I don't know, you can almost just create a movie in your head. If you are if you have a dream you, with the cinematic mindscapes, it can reconstruct what you're thinking. Mm. You can uh, add some captions by thinking what they're saying to each other or even uh, completely not have captions and it will reconstruct the audio that you're imagining in your dream. Yeah, it's very crazy. But the last thing to touch on now before the break is where it gets really spooky. And this is actually, this is actually something very different to what we've been talking about because there are also companies and research groups trying to investigate 
if we can go the other direction. So not just passively recording and detecting what you're thinking, but in addition to that, can we induce a brain state and, and kind of use the computer and the AI to put your brain into a certain state, which is very, very dystopian and scary. But there's this one company that's just announced uh, a few months ago that they have got this kind of machine learning technology which can induce lucid dreaming. Um, so for those of you who don't know, lucid dreaming is basically a type of dream state when you're in REM sleep, whereby the dreamer is conscious that they are dreaming and aware of the fact that they are asleep and in a dream, and in some instances can actually control and, and change the course of that dream. So basically, this is kind of real life inception, which is just crazy. The fact that, you know, you could have some certainty that when you go to sleep, fall into REM sleep, you just kind of become conscious and can start controlling and, and moving around in your dream. So just to caveat this, obviously, this is a lot of the stuff that they're claiming to be able to do so that there's still kind of yet to be human trials of this. Um, they are looking to release a device called the Halo, which would be this EEG type device that you put onto your head, which then uses uh, ultrasound technology to um, target specific regions of your brain and induce a, a firing pattern that is associated with people that are in lucid dreaming. Um, but, you know, people are starting to look into the, this technology and trying to develop it. So, you know, this is what is to come. You know, people are starting to, to do this stuff now. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is real life matrix right there. Yeah, so that is a teaser of, of what's to come in the future. Obviously, after the fun fact segment, we're going to talk about where this technology might be heading. Uh, but for now, let's line it up slightly and, and go to our uh, little break. So, fun fact. Um, I'm going to start us off this time because I think mine's a bit more serious. Not Maybe not so fun, fun fact, but an interesting <laughs> fact about AI nonetheless. And then Ricky's going to come in with a, a pretty silly fact, I think. Are you? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Maybe I'll just big that in my head. <laughs> so my fact is about uh, IBM Watson, which is uh, one of the first examples of uh, AI and supercomputing and also like the first example of a chatbot. Uh, in the early 2000s. And anyway, they, they got this uh, AI to play the game show Jeopardy, which for those of you who don't know, is an answer and question type game show. So the, the person is given the answer and they have to respond with the question to the answer. Um, and it was doing really well. It was the first kind of example of a very general AI able to answer all these different types of questions where the kind of sentiment is quite important as well. But it got to the final round and the category for the final round was US cities. So um, the answer was its largest airport is named after a World War II hero and the second largest is named after a World War II battle. So the, the, the question has to be what is the city name? The, answer, the correct answer was what is Chicago but Watson guessed what is Toronto? So, and it also put five question marks after that as well. So it was clearly uncertain. But not only was that the wrong city, it was the wrong country. So I put this in here because obviously our last episode was like humans versus AI, and I just thought this was a, a, an interesting <laughs> example of where you know it might be confident on the on the answer, but in the big in the general context, you know, it was U.S. cities, so it was well off. Yeah, but, yeah. I think it did pretty well though. It still it did a city. It was a wrong and country. You know, anyway, <laughs> I, I did caveat that by saying it wasn't a very fun fact. But oh no, I, I love that one. Thanks, Kieran. Um, mine's definitely a bit more uh, low level. Um, 
But funny enough, you're talking about IBM's big computer. I'm going to talk about Harvard's big computer from 1947. Uh, and it was named the Harvard Mark II. So I imagine it's their second uh, big computer they made. And this Mark II was used for like Navy stuff. So fairly important. And there was a big problem in the development of the Mark II. And this, this was basically where the computer kept making lots of little mistakes. And they didn't know why the engineers were going through code, you know, day after day, you know, probably drank five litres of coffee. And they just couldn't fix this, this problem. And in computer science, when you're coding a program and your code doesn't work, you call this a, a bug in the code. And but this time, the bug was literally a bug. And this is reported as the first actual case of a computer bug in history where um, they actually opened, they, after trying for weeks, they actually ended up opening back of the computer and found a moth trapped inside no that was disrupting electronics of the computer. So, that is a fun fact. And they, yeah, they, they duct taped it to this like piece of paper and you can see online if you type in a Harvard Mark II. First Moth. computer bug. Wow. They clearly weren't clearing up their desk after working all night or something. Cool. Right. <laughs> right, back to the episode. So, welcome back. And now we're going to get into some of the kind of science fiction type uh, future directions where this technology could go. And, and those already heading that in that in that way. And that will then lead us nicely into why we need to start thinking about the kind of ethical considerations about this technology and, and we need to act on it now. So, so we've seen lots of examples in uh, pop culture and movies where you know, you've know you had the kind of concept, a computer being kind of integrated into a human mind. So think of like the Matrix or Avatar maybe as well, where you're kind of controlling a different being with your mind or, or everything everywhere all at once was one that you mentioned, wasn't it, Riku? Yeah, and in that one you can just download skills straight to your brain. So yeah, it's that kind of backwards, yeah, that backwards pass we were mentioning earlier. So one great example to, to kind of tee off this discussion of where things could go in the future uh, is a great film which I remember watching years ago now, which was Minority Report. So this film is um, based on the science fiction story published in 1956, and it was adapted into a film in 2002 by Steven Spielberg, and then it starred Tom Cruise. But the story basically is that there's this kind of dystopian future whereby there's a police department which is able to apprehend criminals before they've even committed the crime. So it kind of knows they've got this kind of foreknowledge of people that are going to commit murders or very serious crimes. And the system identifies the police enforcers and they go and arrest these people like right before the crime happens. But yeah, the interesting kind of plot twist in the story is, is when the system goes wrong and actually says that the, the head of the crime department is going to commit a murder and he's actually then being chased by the department. So oh, wow. great film. I'd, I'd recommend watching it. But paints this very interesting picture, which seems very dystopian, but scarily we're getting into the realms of this sort of stuff. And, and there's actually uh, been instances of, of US companies that are selling these kind of neural interface technologies to law enforcement agencies around the world. Um, and they've been used uh, in instances to kind of interrogate people's minds to determine crime involvement. So you could see this very dystopian future, you know, maybe using some of the cinematic mindscapes type technology uh, whereby, you know, if you're on trial for a crime, uh, the way that you're kind of determined whether you're innocent or guilty is maybe instead of kind of arguing your case, you go in and just kind of have this cap that's put on your brain and it can just know instantaneously your, your involvement. So so that's a, a very scary future direction, which by these research studies might be made a reality. Yeah, and this kind of highlights why initially Kira and I were really interested and excited for this 
topic. But then you can imagine with the technology in a movie like Avatar, where you can plug in and you can enter another world. It's really exciting. But Minority Report really clearly highlights this fundamental question of cognitive liberty, which we're going to talk much more about later. Yeah. Where our brain data is arguably our most valuable thing. Mm. And another direction as well, which we're starting to see a lot of investment in now as BCI technology and, and mind reading tech is developing is in military use. So um, there's a lot of government investment going into these tech companies for developing tools which could be used. Uh, some examples are kind of controlling swarms of drones uh, just from kind of thinking whilst soldiers are on the, the battlefield, um, upload, download intelligence or commands during combat. Um, another area that governments are investing is t to use your brain scan as a biometric identification. So people are finding ways of kind of getting around fingerprint scanners. So using your firing pattern as a kind of unique identifier um, and also identifying uh, kind of mental vulnerabilities as well for attacking kind of humans directly by going into their mind. So all this stuff, which seems so super science fictiony, is actually being invested in and, and there is research being done into if it's possible. Wow. And we can bring this conversation to how BCI affects everyday life as well. So not just in these movies or maybe more extreme cases in the military, but um, we're seeing this technology enter like education, entertainment, and starting to blend into our kind of personal interrelationships. So starting with education, again, going back to the beginning, a lot of this technology was actually based with uh, motivations to help people with medical conditions. So in education, we get huge benefits from this technology with increases in accessibility, so stuff like um, stuff like mapping between people's brain state and what they want to say. Um, and we also have something very interesting where you can imagine reading students' brain states as they are going through their educational material and you can learn which materials work for them. So some of us might have heard before that different people learn through different mediums, such as like uh, they might learn by doing, by seeing, by writing by listening and we can use a BCI to actually learn preferences automatically so for especially for like younger younger children like who maybe don't know what they prefer the most you can actually use like a like a BCI to learn that for yeah. them. And on a similar note, in a slightly different way, um, there is very big motivation and research as well being done for advertisement companies and agencies to use this technology. Um, you know if they're running kind of trials of different ads or products they could potentially put this technology on people to instantaneously know exactly how they're emotionally responding to products or advertisements to, to perfectly tailor that advert to provoke the most kind of emotional response. And one really cool example of that was actually, you mentioned Avatar. James Cameron was actually contacted by a marketing company which was using the first instances of this technology to help develop the trailer for Avatar and adapt it in a way that invokes the kind of greatest emotional response. Oh, wow. So that technology is going to work for education as well. Mm. Um, and another one is uh, how it might change how examinations work. So I've done a lot of multiple choice exams where there's been times where I just don't know the answer, I randomly guess. And you could imagine using this BCI to read how people's mind states are when they don't know. So now when you mark the exam, uh, the people that just got lucky are no longer going to get given the credit that they would have otherwise. Wow. But so these are all really good things um, that uh, hopefully will make education you know, more reliable, um, more accessible and, and, and more transparent. But there have also been some slightly more dark sides to how this technology has been incorporated in the education domain, which is 
there have been some schools in China that have been reported to use these EEG headbands onto these small um, kind of primary school, probably age like five to ten year old, to measure their attention during a class. So, and this EEG data is directly in live time given to the teacher, so they know which students are and aren't paying attention whilst the class is going on. And the motivation was obviously to get students um, to. Pay more attention because they now know the teacher is aware of their attention span. Mm. But very scary, isn't it? I very think, scary. Yeah. And this is sort of op- opening up all these ethical questions. You know, sh- should you have the kind of right to let your mind wander during class? Maybe even kind of facilitates better learning. So, yeah, all these kind of very interesting questions now. Wow. Yeah. Moving on to entertainment, maybe in a slightly more positive note, is um, kind of playing off the same light of this uh, personalized dynamic usage of your brain data and making the best experience for you is a movie called The Moment, which a research team released in 2018, which uses one of these EEG devices that, again, they're the ones that easily you can just put on your head. And the way they made the movie was they had lots of different edits, sound mixes, and narratives. And they calculated that if you do calculate all the different combinations of possible movies, there are 18 billion ones. So if you go watch this film with all your friends and you'll have your own headsets on, you're all gonna see slightly different versions of the same movie. Yeah, so what they did, similar to the kind of kids in school, they measured attention um, and depending which bits of the movie you were kind of focusing on and was eliciting more of an emotional response it would change which variant of the film you'd be watching. And on that note, actually, so so we've seen some really big tech companies that are starting to invest in this technology for those exact reasons for the kind of potential that they see. So last year, actually, Apple filed a patent for um, a new generation of their AirPods, their headphones, which has integrated EEG electrodes in the bud of the earphone, um, which I think in the patent they were basically discussing that this would initially be used as a, as a health tracking feature. You know, maybe initially for people with epilepsy, it could help them. But we could see in the future as the kind of machine learning algorithms behind them become more advanced that they could be used for all sorts of different things, maybe controlling your iPhone, skipping to the next song, picking a song. So all of these ways that I think Apple have probably thought a lot about. Uh, and another one is Meta as well. So so the company that was formerly Facebook, um, their biggest ever acquisition was actually of a company called Control Labs, which was developing this wristband, which was capable of understanding electrical signals being trans- transmitted to the brain and could be used for controlling computers. Uh, and Meta have acquired this for one of the reasons is because they want to integrate this mind reading technology into their AR and VR headset so that without having to kind of use controllers and, and speech based inputs, you can just think thoughts whilst you're in the kind of virtual reality. So all these very interesting uses that could revolutionize how we interact with the digital world. And there's starting to be a lot of investment. I think that uh, acquisition from Meta was um, between reported to be between 500 million and a billion dollars. So wow. load of money that uh, Meta are at least betting on this technology. So very interesting to see where it will go. Yeah. And I guess this all raises a really interesting question about where we draw the line between humans and AI, because as we become more integrated with the digital world, and, and right now these AIs obviously are in this realm, BCI technology is a way to actually make humans and AI completely coexist in the same space. Mm. And you can see if these big tech companies do it well, you know, in the kind of social companies, if if all of your kind of favorite social media platforms are just that much better and easier to use, if you have this BCI tech you could see how people were getting on board at the kind of sacrifice of their mental privacy. So this is why we need to start thinking about this stuff now, that as the technology is being developed, 
the legislation is not keeping up and people aren't really thinking about where this could go. Yeah, and maybe a really easy analogy and, and a big boundary in my mind when I think about this is that we're really used to when we go on websites and social media and things, we, we accept our cookies being sent away, which is some some trackers on the data we use. And, and I really, I'm a strong believer that when it comes to our brain data, that we we really can't get in, be in the same habit of just clicking accept or additional functionality. We need to be much more careful with actually where our data is going. And, and as Kieran was saying, that a lot of regulation has to catch up to just how widespread the technology is going to become. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's our kind of final bit of kind of internal privacy. You know, you see all these wearable devices now, which are measuring kind of heart rate, motion, your sleep. So, you know, we, we've seen that we're, humans are very interested in what's going on and finding out what's happening within our bodies. And, te- and tech companies have tapped into this and released some really cool products, thinking, you know, like the Apple Watch and all these different ones. And, and our kind of brain data is the next frontier with that. So, uh, but we need to just think slightly differently here because of what is actually kind of encoded and, and hidden within our thoughts and whether we want to give that up. And partly why we mentioned the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once uh, just earlier was the idea of downloading uh, skills and things straight into your brain. And that immediately completely breaks the boundary between humans and AI and, and becomes one because it, it really raises the question, you know, what is a human and what does it mean to be human? And m- maybe we want to have the struggle to learn a new skill. Like, will, will we enjoy playing guitar, for instance, if you could just download Mm. guitar ability and maybe we'll stop appreciating when someone is good at guitar and all these different things that you can see how it's going to completely change our perspective on the things we value in life. So to just finally just mention where all of this could culminate is this kind of is this realm of what people call transhumanism so this is the kind of final point to where we could be going on this road uh, which is basically which is the stuff that, you know, Ricky was talking about when we're getting so integrated with AI and, and the computer. And the ultimate form of that and, and with kind of BCIs is where everything about your current mental state is being understood and can be kind of copied uh, and we can reproduce that mental state. So this is where things could go in, in a very future reality, but, you know, a reality nonetheless, whereby we could theoretically, you know, emulate all of the ways in which the brain's working and how we're thinking and possibly kind of copy that to a robot or a computer or something and then get into this very spooky world of digital immortality. So as much as this sounds like so far away and and kind of science fiction, um, I hope that in these episodes we've conveyed like the the rate at which all of this technology is transforming uh, and we really can't say for certain whether it is feasible or not, but all of the stuff that's happening currently is showing that that is possible in in the future and we need to kind of uh, think about the, the ethics of that now. So so should we just finish off by discussing the kind of the ethics of this and, and what we need to do to protect ourselves? Yeah, I mean, g- given that the end game of this is really going to completely question essentially the meaning of life, <laughs> yeah. um, we should definitely start with the ethics and, and ha- which may help us guide the right way to use this technology. And I think the topic of mental privacy, uh, should we start there? Yeah, it's just kind of posing that question, which is should mental privacy always remain such, you know, should it remain always for us should we sacrifice that for the benefit of kind of some new technology or some kind of enhanced interaction with the digital world and i think one interesting example to uh, pose the question of of where is that balance is uh, there were some tech companies which were trying to embed eeg devices into the headset of cars and i think nissan were paying quite close attention to this technology and might have invested in it um and the idea there was basically that these eeg devices would measure your attention, your focus whilst you're driving, 
and kind of alert you or, or take over the driving possibly if you were getting distracted. Um, which, you know, obviously sounds like a, a fantastic safety feature which could save loads and loads of lives. However, if we don't have the right kind of ownership over that data and we don't have a say of what's being done after those measurements have been made, you know, perhaps that data could then be going off to insurance companies and, and depending on how focused you are on average, would charge you a massive insurance premium. So, you know, unless we have the ownership over that mental data and, and it remains private unless we give consent, there is all sorts of stuff that could be could be done with those brain scans that we don't consent to. Yeah, and maybe a slight counterpoint would be we we have these technologies like um, it's called like a black box, which you put in your car and it tracks the acceleration, rate of braking, things. And if you use like an insurance company's black box, you might you might get reduced premium if you've been driving well. But as Kieran's saying, that I think there's something very different with the brain data. It's much more personal. And for instance, yes, the brain data can help reduce accidents and things. But if you don't read the small print and whether they use that data for something else, you could also imagine maybe there's loads of I don't know scary times when you're driving. And if maybe a company can um, use your data and your brain state when you're scared of something, and they can easily I know learn that pattern and maybe I don't know make a device that can induce this scared state in you and all this. So we have to be really careful where the data is going because we have no idea all the different use cases that can be done and another thing too that you know there may be kind of use cases that aren't possible now but as the machine learning develops and as we gather more of this brain data all of a sudden becomes possible and from all the data that's been gathered we can do all sorts of new things and kind of read different mental states that we weren't able to before so you know as long as these are being powered by ai what we can infer from that data is just going to change as rapidly as it, as it currently is. So, um, yeah, we need to be really careful and, and think about what we give up and to who. So the usage of BCI in the car headsets is, like Kieran was just talking about, is clearly something that is beneficial to the individual who, you know, they don't want to get in a car accident. And ideally, this technology will reduce the, the likelihood of that. But there's the flip side, which is where companies may force their workers to use these BCI technologies for their benefit. So there's no clear gain for the individual that's actually using it. And a good example of that is Tesco, which is which is one of the biggest uh, supermarket brands in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have these, obviously, they have large work, large warehouses where they store all their different things. And the workers there are being made to wear these electronic armbands that record um, essentially electrical impulses to their muscles and things, which can be correlated to productivity and how they're moving things around the warehouse. And of course, Tesco uh, motivated this this initiative with this technology to improve efficiency and save its staff from having to carry around pen and paper to keep track of deliveries and whatnot. But in reality, there were a lot of staff members reporting to the media that this technology was was actually more used to keep tabs on their productivity and and actually people getting paid more or less based on productivity. So um, massively affected the psychology of people at work. If they took an unscheduled toilet break, um, it would reduce their pay. And so we can see that there needs to be a fine line on how this technology is actually used. And and ideally, it's only used in ways that actually benefit the individuals. And there have been studies done as well, which basically show that as companies companies put more and more checks and balances in place for watching over their workers and and how productive they're being actually generates a load of distrust between the employee and the the employer. And we've seen lots of instances of this during the COVID-19 pandemic when people were working at home a lot more. And you had companies that were measuring kind of like keystroke data on the computers and seeing in webcams when people were kind of sat at their desk actually working. So so we've seen that this has been strongly motivated and that companies want to use this kind of productivity 
uh, attention data to improve efficiency and kind of save money. So if they have access to what you're thinking and, and how productive you're being or what you're thinking about, that's just that kind of times a million. Yeah, exactly. And and on that note, also keeping tabs and having more things you're measuring and letting people know that you're measuring on those things. Can If you imagine uh, going back to the school case where, you, where you're monitoring how much attention uh, school children are playing in class, if they know that the, that this BCI technology is just measuring how active their brain is in, in some attentive way. They may just be focusing on something else that isn't actually the, the class content. And they'll get full 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 marks on the attention data, but they actually haven't done what, what the original task is, which is actually to you know sit in class and pay attention to the, the material being taught. So it's, it's just an important point to make that these metrics should only correlate with what you want, and they definitely don't cause what you want. So to conclude then, we're just going to talk very quickly about, you know, what can we do? Because all of this stuff sounds very scary. But there are things that we can be doing and making sure our governments are doing to protect ourselves. Uh, And you mentioned previously, Riku, this um, universal right to cognitive liberty. So just to really quickly explain what this means, um, cognitive liberty basically ensures that individuals have control over their minds and their thoughts, their memories, emotions. So it's not you know, under the control of the people who are measuring that, it's it's your you're in ownership of that. Uh, and this would basically safeguard people against unwanted manipulation of your, your mental states, whether that's your workplace, your government, um, and also even kind of controlling your mind in this very dystopian way that um, governments or military might look to do. And there have been previous examples of that. If anyone's heard of kind of MK Ultra, you could go and Google that. But that's uh, an example where governments have looked to kind of do this stuff before. So, you know, as much as it might seem very scary and, and dystopian, it could happen. And while there is a universal human right to your freedom of thought, uh, having universal right to cognitive liberty extends this a bit further and basically protects those thoughts and, and makes them our own. So so what that would look like basically is, is the kind of United Nations, the UN who originally um, produced the Universal Declaration of Human Rights would be updating that to kind of include uh, some right to kind of cognitive liberty. Um, and, it, you know, individuals would then have the right to refuse any t- technologies or procedures that attempt to change or read those thoughts without consent. Um, and again, protect your brain scan data, these kind of neural recordings by different tech companies, um, and they would all be considered private, kind of like your your medical records that, you know, sharing them or selling the information without consent would be illegal and, and very frowned upon. Um, so all of these things are achievable and they would basically still facilitate this technology being developed, which, you know, as we've seen from the example with lots of medical conditions, is a very beneficial thing, but importantly, it gives us the control and ownership over that data so that it's not used for anything more than we've signed up to. Wow, yeah, I think you make a really strong case there, and and hopefully touch on both the positive and negative side of things. But but of course, we encourage you to do more reading because we can, we've only touched the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah, as we mentioned at the start, I mean, this episode was was partly motivated by a book that I'd recently read, which was fantastic and goes into much more detail on on all of these topics we've covered, which is called uh, The Battle for Your Brain uh, by uh, an author called Nita Farahani. And she is basically leading the the way with a lot of these kind of ethical considerations and and getting involved with research is fantastic. And I would highly recommend that book. But yeah, hopefully we conveyed how important this topic really is. Um, 
and even more so as we've seen with the kind of rapid developments in artificial intelligence that's powering all of these things but yeah hopefully we didn't scare people off too much uh there are incredible benefits to this technology but um yeah i'm sure we're going to talk about more of these things to come in, in future episodes but speaking of future episodes our next episode riku we're going to be talking about the AI that we use in everyday life. And in particular, we're going to be talking about recommendation systems. And, and, and we often think about recommendation systems with social media, but we're going to cover all the other ways recommendation systems are actually integrated with our lives, such as Google Maps. A lot of people mm. don't think of that as a recommendation system-based AI. And how the influences on a, on a sort of daily basis. Yeah, and we're going to question just how much free will we actually have when we use these technologies wow so yeah on that thank you very much for listening um please you know subscribe to the podcast so you can keep updated with the new episodes to come uh, you can email us uh, contact at artificiallyeverafter.com if you have feedback comments episode ideas we'd really like to engage with all of you and, and really appreciate you listening so so yeah thanks for listening and catch, catch you next, next time, time.